Welcome to Conversations in Business with RSM, where we talk to business leaders and experts to gain valuable insights that will help you move your business forward. Hello, and thanks for joining us for another episode of Conversations in Business with RSM. I am Dieter Schulze, Head of Tax at RSM South Africa, and I'm joined by John Jones, our corporate tax expert. Hi, John. Hi there, Dieter, and uh, welcome to everyone. Today, we give you an overview of the special tax rules designed to assist with corporate restructures, mergers and acquisitions in South Africa. Governments around the world have recognized that for business to thrive, the ability to acquire, merge and reorganize a business is critical. Inevitably, all these transactions trigger tax implications for one or both entities concerned. And this creates friction, which discourages the best use of capital and resources, and inevitably leads to inefficiencies. Some countries have introduced a group taxation system, which taxes the group as a whole and not individual companies within the group to allow the group to structure its affairs optimally and operate most efficiently. In South Africa, we don't have a system of group taxation, but we do have specific tax rules dealing with mergers and acquisitions and corporate restructuring. All of these are aimed to defer the tax implications that would otherwise have arisen. John, I know that you eat and sleep these rules, so why don't you give us an introduction to them, after which we can get into some more of the detail. I think just to start off, broadly speaking, the uh, corporate merger and, and uh, restructure rules are covered by sections 41 to 47 of the Tax Act. And then within the body of the Act, there are additional anti-avoidance rules which need to be, be considered when, uh, when looking at these types of transactions. Normally, we use the rules to try and achieve mergers, acquisitions, or perform group restructurings in the most tax-efficient manner. So when we're looking particularly at corporate restructurings, we would normally look at using these rules in, in the following scenarios. Firstly, when we're trying to reorganize the ownership of a company or a group. Secondly, when we're looking to reallocate assets of businesses or functions within group companies. Thirdly, when we're looking to reorganize uh, debt within the group, and then also when we're looking to perform financial restructuring. So, for example, uh, if we're looking to replace debt with equity or vice versa. I think when we start looking at these types of rules, there's there certain fundamental concepts that we need to always consider, and probably the most important concept when considering the application of the corporate restructure rules is whether or not we have a group structure in place. You know, this is particularly defined within the Act, but simplistically, what a group of companies means is two or more companies in which one company directly or indirectly holds more than 70% of the equity shares in the other company. The, the definition then does go on to contain some other components which you need to uh, consider, but in simple terms, this is the minimum requirement for a group for purposes of the group uh, of the corporate restructuring rules. In addition to this, when we're looking at or considering this concept of a group, you need to consider where the C is. And, and by, by that, what I mean is that the group has to exist inside South Africa. So in general terms, if you're looking at a scenario where you have a foreign holding company, um, then that foreign co holding company is excluded from that definition and you draw a line at the South African border. 
Yeah, John, thanks. And, and that's critically important, is often when encountering these transactions, one finds that part of the group sits in South Africa and would qualify for the relief, whereas uh, essentially the holding company might not, or part of the group might not. So critically important on that aspect. Let's then have a look at the specific sections that the Act targets um, in order to gain access to the relief. And the first is section 42, which in this case deals with asset for share transactions, which enables a company to acquire shares in another company and um, acquire a business or even acquire an individual asset in a way that is tax efficient for the seller. And importantly, the seller doesn't have to be a company and can be an individual, a CC, a special trust, a normal trust, or a company for that matter. So quite an interesting provision, Section 42, and available to a broader uh, category of taxpayer than just the group of companies. So, John, do you want to take us through some more of the details in this regard? Yeah, Dieter, I think, uh, I think firstly, that last point that you've made is specifically valid when we start considering Section 42. Because although when we look at the corporate restructure rules, that concept of group is really important. This is one of the rules that we can apply when we don't have a group. And uh, you can apply it in a group scenario, or you can, you can apply it in a, in a scenario where you, where you don't have that group structure as defined. And I think that makes it a very important section when, uh, when we start looking at these group restructure uh, scenarios. So when we look at section 42, fundamentally what we're looking at is, is a situation where a seller will sell an asset or assets to another company at a profit. And in exchange for that, it then receives shares in the purchasing company. The vital concept in the context of section 42, and again, this is as with all of these sections, a relatively complex definition, but it's really important that at the end of the transaction, we end up in a scenario where the seller must end up with what is referred to as a qualifying interest. And at a very simplistic level, that means that they must end up with an equity holding or voting rights in excess of 10%. So what is important in, the, in that concept is that that is post-transaction. And that's why when we start looking at these uh, group situations, you can apply the section where, where you don't have a group as defined. Yeah, just to interrupt there for a sec. Um, I know there's a second element that qualifies, and that's around employment. Correct. Um, do you want to just run into that for a sec? So where the, where the seller constitutes an employee, then that 10% scenario doesn't necessarily apply. So if the seller is an employee or the recipient of the shares is an employee, then that 10% doesn't necessarily apply in terms of the qualifying interest as a percentage. Good. Um, so just to give a very simple uh, example of where we commonly use this, we, uh, as an example, we have a holding company. Um, that holding company holds shares in a subsidiary company. We're now looking at a group restructure uh, potentially to facilitate a, a broad-based black economic empowerment optimization. And in order to facilitate that optimization, we want to move that investment of the holding company into a new company. And in order to achieve this, what the holding company then does is that it disposes of its investment to that new co. 
and the purchase price is then settled by the NUCO uh, issuing shares to the holding company. And by doing that transaction, what you have is NUCO disposing of its investment without any immediate adverse tax effects. Um, so that's really, that's just one possible scenario where we could apply Section 42. Okay, great. And, and John, then just looking at the application of Section 42, does one have to elect into the provisions or do they apply automatically? And then if you do make an election, how do you do it? Okay, so, so and I think you'll find that this is relatively common across all of the group restructure provisions, is that if a transaction satisfies the requirements, and I think that it's quite important when we consider each of these sections, they're very much rules-based. So they're very specific boxes that need to be ticked in order for you to comply with the provisions that are set out in whether it be section 42 or one of the other corporate restructure rules. So if the transaction satisfies the requirements of a section, then uh, the parties don't need to specifically elect. They're automatically deemed to have applied that section. But if the parties don't want to apply, then they need to agree in writing. And that normally you would incorporate into a, a, a share sale agreement or an asset sale agreement or, uh, or a sale of business agreement. And in that particular document, you would then specifically state that you do not wish to apply the provisions of Section 42, Section 44, Section 45, etc. John, that so, makes sense. So, Dieter, maybe just, just one, other, one other component. Although you don't necessarily need to elect within the uh, annual income tax return, as you complete that annual income tax return, you will find that that there are specific questions around whether or not you have applied a group restructure provision or a corporate restructure provision, and that you would then need to either answer in the affirmative or negative, depending on what, uh, what the nature of the transaction was. Ah, okay, very important, because typically you might not know that you've actually entered into one of these transactions because you automatically or they automatically Correct. apply. Correct. Correct. Yeah. And I, th and I think that might kick in. We, we're going to discuss Section 45 a little later on. And, and that's, that's one where this potentially could happen quite easily. Yeah, absolutely. Great. Well, then that deals with the disposal of an asset in exchange for shares in the purchasing company. Let's then move on to Section 44, which deals with amalgamation and merger transactions. And essentially, we're looking at the amalgamation and merger of companies where all the assets of one company are transferred to another company, after which the empty shell company is wound up. So, John, do you want to take us through some of the detail? Yeah, I, do. I think that particularly where, we, where this is applied is when what is referred to as the amalgamated company merges all of its assets into another company. It's normally used in three basic scenarios. So firstly, where a South African resident company transfers its assets to another resident company. Uh, secondly, where a foreign company transfers its assets to a South African resident company. Or thirdly, a foreign company transfers its assets to another foreign company in the same group. I think when we look at this particular section, what is important to keep in mind is that when you apply this provision, 
the intention has to be that the amalgamated company, so that company that merges into the other company, will cease to exist. And factually, when you look at the provisions of the, of the section, you have to ensure that it's wound up within a 36-month time frame. So, you know, again, just to put forward a, a simple example, if within a group we have two operating companies, from a group point of view, it doesn't make sense to keep those operating companies in place because we have double administration, we incur double audit costs, all of those types of things. It just becomes more efficient administratively to take those two entities and merge them into a single entity using the provisions of Section 44. So it can, can create efficiencies, but you've got to keep in mind that that entity, that amalgamated company has got to be wound up. Um, and, and that's generally from a practical point of view where you find where the section has been applied, that winding up process is not triggered. And, uh, and that can then potentially create some, some really nasty adverse effects that are unexpected. Yeah, John, and I think that's the key, is that the conclusion being that all the assets of the one company have to be transferred to the other. Correct. And then that brings us to Section 45, the intra-group transaction rules. And uh, really, these deal where one's got a group of companies, any inter-entity or inter-group transaction is impacted by Section 45. And Section 45 transactions are extremely common. They happen every day. Uh, Whether or not you want them to, Section 45 applies. And again, in order to elect out, you've got to actively elect out of Section 45. Correct. So, John, take us through the detail. So, again, you know, and I think before I go through the detail to to raise that point in the context of the the good old common journal entry. So very, very often within groups, we'll see company A raise a journal entry down to company B or vice versa, and effectively from an accounting point of view, transfer an asset. So this is where potentially you can run into trouble uh, where uh, where these transactions are, are done. And as you say, you're automatically, automatically you fall into the provisions of Section 45 because you're in a group scenario. So when we look at 45, I mean, this really applies when any asset is sold by one company to another company. Both of them need to be residents of South Africa and both of them need to form part of the same group of companies. As you've said, those sales are automatically subject to Section 45 unless you agree in writing that it must not apply. And that's important. That agreement has to be in writing. Um, What does this achieve? So from a tax point of view, when we enter into a Section 45 transaction, and and this may be true for many of the other corporate restructuring rules as well, is that the tax history associated with the asset being transferred is effectively rolled over. So there is no triggering of capital gains tax There is no triggering of uh, potentially of the recoupment provisions that may or may not apply. So you transfer the asset and what happens is that the asset's tax history moves with it. So maybe to put this into an example, if I transfer a piece of plant and equipment on which my uh, selling company has been claiming wear and tear, the purchasing company will continue to claim wear and tear on exactly the same basis. 
So you don't start with a new cost, you apply the old cost and you continue to claim as if you were one and the same taxpayer. And that's really what Section 45 allows you to do. So again, example-wise, you know, within a group, we, we might have two operating entities, maybe one houses an asset which is solely used by the other entity. Um, and there's no, there's no particular cost recoveries or recharges or et cetera. And it just makes more sense to put the asset into the entity that's actually utilizing uh, that asset. So we do a sale and we apply the provision of the section 45, which effectively makes it a tax neutral transaction, but we carry the tax history. Okay, John, no, that's great. And then uh, I, I guess the challenge here is that we track the historic tax base and the, uh, the information relating to that asset is tracked so that when it's sold outside of the group, the taxing implications then roll out and can be calculated. So very important as far as the record keeping is concerned here too. Yeah, absolutely important from a practical perspective. And I, and I think just to expand on that point a little bit, you know, commonly where, where you have huge fixed asset registers with separate wear and tear registers, you know, moving those across and making sure that those are maintained appropriately becomes somewhat challenging from a practical standpoint. But that's what needs to be done. Yeah, and I think the other issue is to ensure that you understand what the implications are in Correct. the event that any of the anti-avoidance provisions trigger and you dispose of those assets within yeah. a certain time frame. And I know that uh, we'll, we'll ask you to deal with those details a little bit later. Okay, John, well, let's then move on to Section 46, and that deals with unbundling transactions. So really aimed to assist a group of companies to reorganize the shareholding within the group and move companies around within the group. So, John, you want to give us a little bit of detail around that? Yeah, so on the face of it, relatively simple. So what you're looking at here is applying this in a scenario where a company has a shareholding in what is referred to as an unbundled company, and it wants to transfer its entire shareholding in that company to its shareholders. So we, we see it more commonly in the, in the listed environment um, because there's some specific provisions within Section 46 which allow shareholders of a listed company to apply the provisions, but it can be used in the case of an unlisted company and, and will allow both for the shareholders to acquire directly by way of a distribution in specie all of the equity shares that are held by, by that listed or unlisted company. In the case of an unlisted company in particular, it can only apply where the share, uh, shareholders are companies and part of the same group as the unbundling company in order to qualify for the relief. So to try and put that into a, a simplistic example, if we try and picture a group structure where we have the shareholders at the top, what is referred to as the unbundling company uh, as directly underneath those shareholders, and then directly under the unbundling company, the unbundled company, what you would do is you would take the shares that the unbundling company holds in the unbundled company and transfer them to the shareholders at the top. So effectively removing that relationship between, uh, between the unbundling company and the unbundled company. 
it's not something that we see commonly within the understood environment, but it can be utilized within that uh, zone as well. And, and I think, Joan, I'm, I'm just smiling because it, every time I've tried to apply the Section 46 provisions, there's been a stumbling block. Yeah. Um, you know, the requirements are really specific. They're so, very, they're very, very specific. Yeah. Well, then let's move on to Section 47. And uh, Section 47 deals with the liquidation, winding up, and deregistration of a group company. And, you know, often we sit with a company within a group environment that we want to get rid of for a number of reasons. And Section 47 is quite useful when it comes to, the, to, um, to that and being able to liquidate, deregister, wind up an entity in the group free of any of the, ta- the usual tax implications. So, yeah. John, give us a little bit of insight into that. So, again, just, just going into very basic nuts and bolts, what we're looking at here is, as you've indicated, is that the liquidating company looks to dispose of its assets to its shareholders. And in order to do that, there's certain minimum requirements that you have to meet. Firstly, the liquidating company must dispose of all of its assets. It is allowed to retain certain assets that it may require in order to settle its debts um, in terms of its day-to-day operation in the process of liquidation, etc. The distribution that is made to the shareholders must be made in anticipation of or in course of a liquidation or winding up or deregistration. So again, very similarly, when we go back to that Section 44 scenario, you've got to make sure that once you've done this, you then trigger those steps of liquidating, winding up, or deregistering. Um, you, you can't leave this company to sit ad infinitum. You've actually got to trigger the steps. And then uh, the shareholders must be South African residents and companies which are part of the same group of companies. So again, we have this issue around groups and group structures, which have, have to be met in order to facilitate the section. So I, I think probably what is the most vital aspect of this section is that third point around distribution being made in anticipation of or in course of a liquidation, winding up a deregistration, that we understand that once we've done the distribution, we must trigger the steps. So we need to approach uh, the company registrar, trigger the liquidation process as far as they are concerned, and flowing from that, obviously, approach the uh, South African Revenue Services and start processes as far as deregistrations, whether it be for VAT, payroll taxes, or normal taxes. Okay, excellent. Thanks, John. And I think then that gives us a nice, pricey, and high-level overview of the provisions that exist to facilitate the corporate restructures, mergers, and acquisitions. And uh, I think it's just important to emphasize that these are complex and careful consideration must be given when applying any of them. And as we saw with Section 45, we actually need to understand when they apply. So I think some of those complexities would be good to just cover at a very high level, John, just to give us a taste of what we need to look out for. So Dita, I think in looking at, again, at a pretty high level, but just looking at the issues that create complexity, I think firstly, and it's so vital, you have to determine the correct section for a transaction. So sometimes when you look at these corporate restructure rules, maybe you can apply a section 42, maybe you can apply a section 45, maybe you can apply one or the other. 
and you need to just um, can i interrupt you there for a second yeah. because the thought just crossed my mind is in fact it's not necessarily a one or the other it might be a sequence of these it, so, it could be, yes you could apply a, a sequence where for example you do a section 45 transaction in order to move an asset or an investment up into another entity Flowing from that, you may then want to structure your subsidiaries below and then apply a section 42. And then there might be an alternative section 45. So there's a whole range. You know, I tend to be hesitant in using the terminology flexibility because they're very rules-based. But sometimes when you look at an overall restructure scenario, there is a degree of flexibility in terms of which section you potentially will apply. And it may be simpler to apply one over the other, uh, just depending on, on what the scenario is. And I think that goes on to, to, to the next point I'd like to make. But it's important to understand that each section has very specific rules which you have to meet. So, you know, to look at a, at a Section 42 transaction where you're doing a share for share, you've got to be cautious around the fact that your market value of the asset that you're disposing of has to be equal to or exceed the original base cost. If it doesn't, you might not be able to apply Section 42. So there are very specific rules within each of these provisions, and you've got to work through them very carefully. Um, and, it's, and it's very easy to miss those one-off scenarios or that rule that maybe you're not ticking the box that you need to tick. Um, I think flying from that, and I mean, something that because the, the nature of this discussion is, is over a relatively short time frame, uh, is that we haven't dealt with the anti-avoidance provisions. Each of these sections has uh, anti-avoidance provisions. So just to give an example, uh, if you do a section 45 transaction and apply section 45, uh, if you were to dispose of that asset within an 18-month time frame, you potentially will then trigger an adverse tax consequence. Alternatively, if uh, the entities uh, degroup and no longer form part of the same group uh, within a 36-month time frame, uh, you could potentially trigger adverse tax consequences. That's something that you need to be very aware of when you go through these types of transactions. The time frames can be quite lengthy. If you think about a 36-month period or even an 18-month period, and you think about a scenario where you have fixed asset registers with you know, 2,000 line items, it's quite difficult to monitor whether you're effectively triggering it, uh, one of the anti-avoidance provisions. And then I think the last point, and it for me is incredibly important, when you go through a corporate restructure in whatever form, you need to go beyond the tax requirements. You need to think about the Companies Act and what do I need to do in order to ensure that I'm meeting the requirements that are set out in the Companies Act. You need to think about the legal agreements and make sure that the appropriate legal agreements are in place. You need to think about things like broad-based uh, Black economic empowerment. And, by, and am I, by doing this corporate restructure, either improving that scenario or not? Maybe I'm making it worse, and maybe, therefore, it's not appropriate. Uh, you need to consider valuations in terms of the assets 
or investments that you're moving around as to whether uh, whether we need to look at valuing those assets or, or investments before we do the corporate restructure. And then the last thing, which very often is overlooked, um, is uh, VAT. So particularly when we look at VAT, there is a, a particular section within the VAT Act, Section uh, 825, which might result in VAT being disregarded where you're, where you're applying a group restructure, but you need to be cautious. So that simple scenario of where we sell an asset and we're just selling an asset, we can apply Section 45 and roll over the, uh, the tax implications, but we maybe have put ourselves in a position where we should have charged VAT at standard rate. So it's not a disregarded transaction. And that, that doesn't necessarily only happen in, uh, in, in group restructured transactions. I mean, we see this very commonly within groups. Again, the good old journal entry, you know, where we, we, we charge between these companies. And we have to always keep at front of mind is that they're different legal entities. And we need to think carefully about whether we need to charge VAT or not charge VAT. So those are just the sort of additional areas that you've got to consider when you're, uh, when you're looking at these types of uh, transactions. No, thanks, John. And, and maybe in summary, let's just, let's just recap what taxes we're talking about that can be deferred or avoided in the process. And, uh, and we're looking at income tax. We're looking at capital gains. We're looking at recoupments, yeah. dividends tax donations tax, transfer duty, securities transfer tax, and as John just mentioned, VAT. So essentially, it's the entire suite of taxes that we can avoid if utilizing the group relief provisions. And in some cases, need to understand that we actually need to elect out of them because they apply automatically. Correct. So, and I think, sorry, just to just to interject there. I mean, that apply automatically can be important. It might not, in considering the transactions, it'd be advantageous to apply them. Quite right. Uh, no, might on. be preferable not to apply them. Yeah, and 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 one reason might be that there's an ongoing requirement to keep track of that. Uh, because the tax implications are different when you ultimately dispose of that asset outside of the group. Yeah. Okay, excellent. Well, John, do you want to sum up? Yeah, so I think just basic takeaways in, in terms of what we've discussed. Firstly, your corporate restructure rules can be very effective if they're used correctly. They can achieve some, uh, some objectives that in, in certain scenarios, you never actually thought you could achieve until you go through the process and apply your mind and, and look at the applicability. Secondly, and I can't stress this enough, I, I think we come across this so much in our practical environment is that you've got to consider these transactions holistically. You've got to think about all those other issues, Companies Act, legal, triple B, all, all of those things need to be considered and thought about. We come across it so often in practice where legal agreements are drafted by, uh, by commercial attorneys and there's no conversation had with the tax advisors. And you end up in some fairly silly scenarios that are sometimes quite difficult to resolve. And then lastly, I think just keep in mind those anti-avoidance rules. Um, as I said, some of these can remain in effective for lengthy periods of time. 
and you need to consider them ongoing, not, not only when you actually perform the transaction, but post the performance of that transaction, you've got to continue to monitor to ensure that you're not potentially triggering those anti-avoidance rules. Yeah, John, uh, thanks. So, so I think the warning there is that uh, don't let the tail wag the dog. Correct. And, uh, and look at these from a holistic point of view. Yeah, no, good advice. So right with that, I think we've come to the end of the session. John, thanks so much for all your insights and input. Thanks, Peter. But, uh, hopefully that's been worthwhile to everyone. And uh, thanks very much for joining us. That was Conversations in Business with RSM. Experience the power of being understood. Experience RSM. Visit rsmza.co.za.